BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, I'm Whitney Port and this is With Wit. A lot of you may know me from reality TV and the reality is a lot's happened since the hills. With Wit is dedicated to having real, raw, and occasionally ridiculous conversations with the people who have had a profound impact on me. Life-changing moments, life-changing people. Because on With Wit, very little is off-limits. We are inundated with information all day long from all over the place. Unfortunately, misinformation spreads like wildfire, especially in times of crisis. Today, I spoke with Dr. Seema Yasmin, an Emmy award-winning journalist, Pulitzer finalist, and a CNN medical analyst who advocates for media literacy and slowing the spread of false news. She attended medical school at Cambridge University and worked as a disease detective for the U.S. federal government's Epidemic Intelligence Service. She currently teaches storytelling at Stanford University School of Medicine. In her latest book, Dr. Yasmin brings the next generation into the misinformation conversation. What the Fact, Finding the Truth in All the Noise offers teens and adults a how-to guide to build the discernment necessary to tell fact from fiction. We discussed everything about the mission of her book, why misinformation spreads, and how we can thoughtfully consume and process media, how we cannot compare ourselves to others, how this can affect our mental health, and so, so, so much more. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let me know what you think. Here is Dr. Seema Yasmin. These days, you are advocating so much for media literacy and really slowing the spread of false news. And you've written a book called What the Fact? Finding the Truth in All the Noise. And I just think this conversation is so important to have right now. We're becoming aware of all of the information out there, but it's hard to figure out how to funnel it and how to organize it and how to know who to listen to and who not to. What really led you? to write the book. It was this feeling that misinformation and disinformation had become buzzwords and fake news as well. Right. But we were kind of just like shoving this bad news and doom and gloom situation at kids and teens and kind of leaving them in the lurch. I felt like we were kind of saying, oh my God, it's so bad out there. You can't trust anything. Who knows like what's real or not in the mainstream media. And by the way, kids, just figure it out yourselves. And I'm like, (laughs) that's not fair because there's actually a science and there's evidence 
behind these skills that you can develop that make you really, really astute and really good at separating fact from fiction. So even my friends will say to me, oh, you've been studying the spread of false information for over a decade and now you've written this book. Like, it must be really depressing for you when you do your research, when you write your books. (sighs) No, it's the exact opposite because even though there is this doom and gloom situation, I live in the space of all the solutions that are out there right? helping us separate facts from fiction and also this kind of new field, new-ish field of quote unquote immunizing your brain against BS. So I find that solutions approach actually really exciting. Like, hey, there's a way we can dig our way out of this hole. You want to instill these tools into your kids in life as well to be able to really understand like who you can trust and have like a, a, a grounding, a base in trust. Right. Yeah. So other than the obvious, which is just like social media in and of itself, but like, why do you feel like misinformation spread so much and why do we fall for this? It spread for as long as humans have existed. So right. It's just, it's gossip. (laughs) It's like people talk and then it's just like the modes of communication have changed. Exactly. And even nowadays I study conspiracy theories a lot and like, oh, why do people believe that particular conspiracy theory? It's so wild. And why is this one circulating? But back in the day, before we had kind of like a robust scientific method, and before we had science that could prove and disprove things, we had fairy tales and folklore and all these ways that helped us as humans survive and live through existential crises, because the world is not black and white. It's so many shades of gray. And sometimes that's just headache inducing and anxiety provoking. So what happens, especially in times of uncertainty, fear, and crisis, we fill those gaps with information, any information. So I'll give you one quick example. I think it was, gosh, the years are all merging together, but I think- (sighs) 2022, that there was that really tragic concert in Houston. I think it was Astro World. Yes, yes. There were people there and they died in the crush. So horrific. Even young people and kids, and the mind does boggle like, how does that happen in this day and age? Like, why haven't we made big concerts safe for everyone? No one should, you know, leave a, a concert in an ambulance. And when that tragedy happened, of course, there's all these questions, there's all this stuff circulating on social media. People have questions. Why was What was law enforcement doing? What was the crowd control approach? Why did it take ambulances long to get there, right? And law enforcement and the local politicians, whatever, were like, we're doing our due diligence. We're answering these questions and we'll have a press release in six hours time or tomorrow or this day, right? And they have to do that because they need to gather information. In the meantime, What went viral on TikTok and Instagram? Well, it was this conspiracy theory that the deaths were not accidental, that actually they were a pre-planned satanic ritual, and that the whole concert was a Satan-worshipping event. You look at that and you think, okay, like of all the things that you could have conjured up, that's the one. (laughs) Just goes to show it went viral. People believed or they didn't believe it. But it filled that gap of give me some explanation. Something to believe in, right. That right. Is why I often refer to conspiracy theories as like safety blankets or security blankets. It's that, oh my God, the world is so scary. No one is connecting the dots. The police are taking ages to come up with answers. I'll just believe this for now. So then how can we actually thoughtfully consume 
and process media, like during times of crisis. There's the, the school shootings, the pandemic, the the war, like how do we actually stay informed while not getting sucked into all the different conspiracy theories or misinformation? It's a lot, right? We, again, talk about misinformation, disinformation, and fake news, but actually I write in the book that when people have calculated how much news out there actually is truly fake, and it's a pretty small amount, you know, you might be surprised. So what the problem is often is just information overload. It might actually be tons of accurate information. Your brain just can't process it because we live in a 24-hour news cycle and you're just being bombarded. Your phone is constantly pinging. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book, and I should say it's written for teens, but it's so applicable to us as adults, especially like growing up with social media, never like having lessons or tools on how to use it wisely and regular media too. Right. One of the things I talk about is one, like being aware of what happens during a crisis, during breaking news. Things are reported that are wrong. Be aware of that. Be extra wary at that time, right? But the other thing is being deliberate and intentional about when and where you get your news. Yeah. I call it curating a news diet. And I'm guilty of this too. Like I will doom scroll in bed sometimes. I know it's bad for me. Totally. Bad for my sleep. But even writing this book is so useful because I tell myself, oh yeah, I wrote that whole chapter about how when I scroll, when I see likes and notifications, it pings in my brain. I get a little surge of dopamine, which feels really good. And I tell myself, okay, there's this feedback loop. It's kind of addictive. Like that's what's happening. And it helps me put my phone down and book or just like meditate and fall asleep instead. No, totally. Yeah. We're all on here. We're all about like those mindful moments of yes, like you're going to do those things and we're all human. But the more that we think about it and are like being deliberate with our actions and where we're putting our energy to, like the less we will likely do it, but not to then shame ourselves when we actually do it. Totally. And because there's pressure to be plugged in all the time. Right, right. Then, to be connected, to be responding to people. Right. I mean, we send apology texts and we're like, oh, sorry, I didn't respond to you like immediately because nowadays like that's our culture. It's like, uh, I know instant gratification, instant responses. So I even talk in the book about keeping a diary, even if it's just for a couple of weeks and I call it doing an audit. Like if you've spent a lot of time on Instagram right now, like, how do you feel? And maybe you feel uplifted because of how your timeline is curated. Mm-hmm. Maybe you feel kind of crappy about your figure or about your eating or about your lifestyle. And that can be a really helpful thing to know that plugging into certain outlets, certain platforms has that particular impact on your mental health, your mood and your well-being. So I'll tell you this, the algorithms are designed to keep you hooked because the longer your eyeballs are on the screen, the more those social media platforms can charge advertisers. They unfortunately do not give a crap about your well-being or about world peace or about accurate news. Sometimes they pretend to. So it has to be on you to unplug at times and be deliberate and intentional. Right. Or to curate what it is you're following. I think that especially for my family, like we don't have the news just on in the background, which I like, I stay away from recommending things because I never want to tell people how to live. But I just think like with a five-year-old in the house, it's not necessarily healthy because their brains are really absorbing all that stuff. And then also for me, like I 
will not read the news or listen to anything in the morning or at night because I feel like those are major mood shifter moments, right? The, the beginning of the day, you're like getting going. And so I try to just be like in my own world and not expose myself to the outside world yet. And then I sort of find like, because I'm able to work from home, I have like a lull after lunch. And that's when maybe I'll watch something for a second or like when Timmy and I are cooking dinner together and Sunny's not in there, like we'll listen to what's going on. But I think that like even having this conversation has made me more like mindful about when it is we we take it in. Yeah. And where you're getting it from too. Yeah. You said something about the algorithms too. Is there any way to kind of like healthfully navigate the algorithm? Any tips for how you recommend utilizing social media in that way? Yeah, definitely. And before I get into that, I will say like one of the things we do need to keep pushing for is advocacy towards government so that we have better regulation of social media platforms. Okay. It's really easy to kind of just be like, oh, social media is bad. Don't use it. But of course, it's amazing. And there's so much great connection and learning and sharing that can happen there. But it's also a really slippery slope. And just using social media, but then researching this book, oh, my goodness, wit. I fell down some really deep, dark rabbit holes really quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. The research has shown it. The Guardian, the Lowy Institute, all these places have been doing research. That even when platforms like TikTok say we have banned content that promotes unhealthy eating and disorders like anorexia, that content is still there and there's ways around it. And in fact, algorithms still push it. Why? Because it's provocative. It keeps eyeballs on the screen and it keeps you scrolling. So I say that because a lot of the algorithm stuff has been kept secret from us for good reason, you know, for the the platforms. But as we have whistleblowers, as we do more kind of like peeling back the curtain and reverse engineering, we're seeing that tweets that include hateful speech and Instagram posts that rile you up and provoke deep emotion, especially negative emotion, they do quote unquote better. They go viral more. And the algorithms have understood that. The people programming those algorithms have really leaned into that. So not that we can undo all of that. Yes, please, let's keep pushing government to change this. But in the meantime, I think it's really empowering to be aware of what's happening behind the screen. Definitely. That in and of itself can make you feel like, okay, I see what's being done here. And I see that I am being manipulated because it really is manipulation. Right. In the society where we're constantly comparing ourselves to others, especially when we're scrolling through social media. Like, do you have any mantras or anything that you tell yourself when you find yourself doing this or even before you're about to start scrolling? I know that I, I, when I'm going on social media, it should just be for fun or for inspiration or whatever. But I, I feel like I am subconsciously comparing myself and I just wish I had more tools for how to not. (laughs) You know, what can feel really empowering and intriguing and also make you more self-compassionate and not blame yourself is understanding how our brains are hardwired and understanding that the algorithms are completely exploiting our brain chemistry. So when I wrote the chapter in What the Fact about our brains and how we're so susceptible to stories and how, you know, the pings on our phone, the alerts lead to dopamine surges, that I think is really empowering and kind of helps you understand what's going on. It doesn't make you completely immune to it, 
but it can help you realize maybe turning off alerts is a good idea. Or maybe putting my phone on do not disturb for a certain chunk of the day is a good idea. Or even I think I talk about some of the studies where putting your phone on black and white makes it a lot less engaging and can actually decrease the amount of time that you are super glued to your phone. Because again, the bright colors, the gamification of social media, all of that stuff is designed to keep our eyeballs glued to the screen. So being aware of that kind of helps you understand exactly what's happening and why you feel that pull to keep scrolling. So in your book, like you were talking about so many different studies that you were able to do, can you give us a glimpse into like some of those studies and and how this isn't only like something that's affecting us while we're using these platforms, but how it's just affecting how we're like moving around in this kind of robotic way in our in our regular lives. Yeah, it really impacts everything we feel about ourselves. There's many studies I talk about that show what we see on social media platforms impacts our mental health. And that, of course, impacts physical well-being too. And there's been studies, especially of girls, young girls and teenage girls, a very high proportion on diets, even by the age of 10. Uh And social media, unfortunately, is really stoking that. And that's where this whole conversation about media literacy and digital literacy comes in, because what you do when you read a book like this, or you, you have classes and there's not enough education in schools around this, in my opinion, is you really start understanding the world around you in a more critical sense so that you're right. not just a passive sponge absorbing everything, but there's kind of like this defense mechanism between you and all the information. And you're much more like a very selective picker of what you want to take in. And even what you do select to look at as a young girl, a young boy, a teen, you're kind of like looking at it and spinning it around from all angles and you're able to appraise it. And I just worry right now that we're not giving young people those skills. It's very few states actually mandate any kind of media literacy or digital literacy. And I really worry what that's going to look like in the future in terms of mental health, in terms of political engagement, in, in terms of like, I don't know, even future insurrections, right? How these things happen yeah, is so like not able to separate fact from fiction. That's so true. It's so interesting because we've been doing all these school tours for our five-year-olds who were applying to to private school for kindergarten and all the schools have talked about this media literacy and like how they have courses and how to use the the web responsibly and that whole thing and it's like wow i i i didn't even really think about that before you know like like you said we're we're older now so that wasn't part of our curriculum but i think that it is so important and it's such a cool offering and something that should be done at every, every single school. I'm so glad Um, to hear that way because often it's not discussed at all. And uh, this is the first book tour I've done that involved going to schools, having gone to middle schools and high schools. And I tell you, the kids get it. They are so plugged into these conversations and they're like chomping at the bit to talk about quote unquote, fake news. And the teachers, many of them have not taught this, but say they've been wanting to and have felt they have not had the resources or they feel hesitant that they're not on the same page as the kids. So they're not going to get it right. And that was one of my motivations for writing this book is let's literally be on the same page. And there's a teaching guide that goes with it too, that's available for free online. It's got lesson plans, chapter guides, 
and just makes the book really usable in the classroom and at home. Do you feel comfortable recommending like any news outlets that you follow and trust and, you know, and turn to? Yeah, sure. I can share a few. I don't recommend any but everything because I feel like everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. Totally. And it's important to notice that. And that's also kind of a way of immunizing yourself against just believing whatever's out there because you, you're still kind of like listening or reading or watching with a critical eye. I do like the BBC for some of their health and science and politics reporting. Okay. I like NPR definitely for their public health, their global health reporting. Love NPR. Yeah. Yes, me too. And also because I like listening to my news at times. Me too. My eyes on the screen. So, and I kind of grew up with BBC Radio. So there's definitely that part of it that's kind of like a ritual. It's part of my day. It's comforting. It's calming too. <laughs> I I am so with you on that. Just to like listen and the accent. It's very soothing. It's like a very digestible way to take in the news. <laughs> you know, you might be surprised by this, but also Twitter. I still am on Twitter and uh-huh. follow particular journalists who I know are really really in depth on their particular beats like they have them subject area and they go hard on that area and I trust them because I followed them for so long but you have to experiment with this stuff and even one of the things I recommend to kids and what the fact is you know a lot of young people are really interested in climate change and seeing like what's changing what's happening and I recommend following a few different outlets to get the same news on climate change and then comparing right they cover it and thinking Mm -hmm. about what suits you what you find comfortable but also kind of like you know sticking your toe out of your comfort chamber your echo chamber and your safety bubble and trying different outlets and doing that comparison can be very telling and then you'll make a decision for yourself as opposed to just getting the news somewhere because someone told you to right and sometimes I think it's healthy and you may disagree with this but like to listen to alternative points of views I do Um, remember and yeah then you're making your you're making a comparison for yourself and you're making up your own mind and I think yeah it's just the better way to go. So as someone who's just looked into unplugging and has obviously really dug into it, like, how do you unplug? And what do you do to take care of yourself? Sometimes, I mean, I live in the mountains, so it's easier for me to just leave my phone behind. And even if I take it, I may not have cell signal and go for a walk, like mm-hmm. just outside, mm-hmm. absorb sunshine and, you know, be under a big blue sky. And other times it means being at home. And I happen to love reading books. So I just have to make sure I resist the urge to take a photo of the page I'm reading that I love and putting it on Instagram. Yeah. And so it might just look like, you know, shutting my laptop and my phone and putting them in a different room. But you have to just experiment and see what works with you. And again, like, don't beat yourself up if you're not as quote unquote good as you'd like to be. Totally. Are you on a book tour right now or have you finished it? Kind of halfway through in a way. Christmas break was a time to just hunker down at home. I'm writing a novel, so I needed to get my head down for that. Oh, I was just going to ask what you were working on now. Yes, I'm working on my first young adult novel and it's coming out next year. It's called Unbecoming and it's set in Dallas, Texas, where I used to live. So I'm really excited about that. But I will be doing more school visits for What the Fact and then hopefully more school visits for Unbecoming since it's also a young adult book. 
Yeah. Amazing. Tell us about your education a little bit and just like how you came into, you know, this, this space. Yeah. Really unconventionally. Cause I don't come from an academic family. Um, but I kind of was raised by a mother who wanted me to buck that trend. Totally. Taught me that education was going to be my way of like breaking the cycle. So my, I'm originally from England, as you can tell from the accent. My, yeah, so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. But my parents are actually from India and moved to the UK in the 60s and 70s. And my mom, even though she was super bright, was married off at 17 and pregnant with me when she was 19 through no choice of her own, Uh was in a really unhappy marriage and realized that the little girl she was holding in her arms was going to have the exact same life unless she did something about it. So she was extremely brave. It may not sound brave, but this was like the bravest thing ever to do at that time. Uh She divorced, left the marriage and went to university. She was 25 and I was five years old. And she went to university and raised me in the dorms with her because she figured if she could get an education, then it would change my life. Mm. And it completely did. So I ended up going to med school, training as a doctor, loving that, but becoming really interested in public health. So about 10 years ago, just over, I left being a hospital doctor in England to come to America to serve as an officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC, which anyone who's watched the movie Contagion, that's the job that Kate Winslet has. Oh my God. Wait, explain version. the job. Ex- I, I haven't seen it. Explain the job. You haven't seen no, it? No, I haven't. <laughs> I feel like you should win a prize for that because I think everyone watched it. Yeah, everyone definitely watched it. I know, no, no, I know. I was living through my own husband's conspiracy theory, so I didn't want to add to it. Oh, gosh, that's a whole nother conversation I want to have with you. Totally. (laughs) You should watch it. It's a really interesting film. And in fact, I made a video with Wired that's on their YouTube channel comparing the movie to my real life. Oh, my gosh. But essentially, the Epidemic Intelligence Service has been around for like 70 years. It's usually kept pretty quiet. But of course, times like this comes up into the the press. But it's a group of doctors and scientists who are the government's first response to epidemics anywhere in the world. And it's a really exciting job. I mean, it's not like Kate Winslet where you, I won't, no spoilers wit since you actually have (laughs) but on any given day, you don't know where you're going to get sent, except that you will be sent somewhere where people are very sick or even dying. And Uh it's your job to figure out what disease is spreading and how can you stop the contagion. Okay. So I was doing that job and I loved it. It was my reason for moving to America. But that 10 years ago was when I was like, this is ridiculous because I'm in America and I keep being sent to epidemic after epidemic of whooping cough, measles, mumps, all of these infections that should not be making children sick. Because we have vaccines. And in fact, there were even kids in America who were dying. Oh my God. Horrible deaths of whooping cough, for example. And I was so enraged and I left the CDC after a few years there because I was really disillusioned that the agency was not doing enough to fight the anti-science movements. Uh Anti-vaccine misinformation and disinformation was already out there and it was just getting stronger. And I just didn't, I couldn't handle seeing more sick children who were sick with infections that we could have prevented. Right. I felt like we were failing. Like no kid should be on a ventilator 
in the NICU when they are seven days old because a nurse has coughed over them with whooping cough. And that was literally the kind of outbreaks I would investigate were NICU outbreaks of whooping cough where these preemies who were days old nearly died because healthcare workers went to work sick and unvaccinated. And I was just like pulling my hair out. So I didn't know exactly how to fix that problem, but I ended up going to journalism school to learn more about storytelling and how information can spread and how misinformation can spread, but also how you can effectively debunk that stuff. That's kind of in a nutshell, how I got to where I am now and why I'm so passionate about giving people all the tools that are in this book for separating facts and fiction, for noticing the lies, and then for immunizing your brain against falling for falsehoods. So amazing. You've got that whole thing on lock. (laughs) That's amazing. That's so, I mean, like props to your mother for making that decision. So insanely brave. I totally admire her. Is she still back in England? She's in the States now. And yes, I'm always eternally grateful to her for making that very scary decision. And, you know, our family did not take kindly to it at all. So she was, yeah, kind of estranged for a while. And it was really hard for her. I had someone on the podcast here who was talking about the importance of certain mothers, especially in like Martin Luther King's mom and Malcolm X's mom and how these women have kind of gone like a little bit unnoticed in history, but how so much of what they did obviously shaped their their sons and what they did. And so I always just want to like shout out the moms. <laughs> um, definitely, definitely. Yeah. But thank you. Honestly, thank you so, so, so much for taking the time to come on. If anybody here wants to read her book or check out more about you, where would they go to find anything? You can just go to my website, which is my name, simayasmin.com. And then also find me on Instagram since I do live on social media with Dr. Seema Yasmin and on Instagram as Dr. Yasmin. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Wit. Thanks for having this conversation. Of course. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you loved this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I'd love to hear what you think and anything more or even less you'd want to hear about. Tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, you can find me on Instagram at Whitney E. Port, my website, WhitneyPort.com, and my YouTube channel, Whitney Port. Peace in the streets. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.